President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy have a high-stakes meeting in the Oval Office. The issues before them and the latest on the search for classified documents, wherever they may be, coming up. It's Wednesday, February 1st, and you're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, one year to the day after he said he was stepping away from the NFL for the first time, quarterback Tom Brady announced he's retiring again, this time for real. And Pope Francis recently made a historic trip to the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it's the first time a Pope is visiting in almost 40 years. The majority of people in DRC weren't even alive to remember it because the population is so young. He warned that Africa is not terrain to be plundered. And how dolphins and humans go fishing together. It's 401. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Thousands of people are attending Tyree Nichols' funeral in Memphis this hour. You are my strength. Prayers abound inside the Mississippi Boulevard Christian Church as the congregation, including Vice President Kamala Harris and other dignitaries, mourns the loss of yet another black man to die at the hands of police officers. Delivering the eulogy, the Reverend Al Sharpton noted the tragic irony that last month's brutal exchange, allegedly perpetrated by black police officers, took place near the site where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was fatally shot. You didn't get on the police department by yourself. Police chief didn't get there by herself. People had to march and go to jail and some lost their lives to open the doors for you. And how dare you? Act like that sacrifice was enough for nothing. Five former Memphis officers are now charged with second degree murder and other charges. The Justice Department searched President Biden's Rehoboth, Delaware Beach House today for three and a half hours. NPR's Tamara Keith reports this is the latest search in an ongoing investigation of the president's handling of classified materials. According to a statement from the president's personal attorney, Bob Bauer, the Department of Justice search was conducted in coordination and cooperation with Biden's team. And no documents with classified markings were found. However, as with the search of Biden's Wilmington residence, DOJ did take some materials and handwritten notes that Bauer says appear to be from Biden's time as vice president. They were taken for further review. Classified documents have also been found at the homes of former vice president President Pence and former President Trump. There are now separate special counsels investigating both Trump and Biden's handling of classified materials. Tamara Keith, NPR News. The Fed raised interest rates by a quarter percentage point today as it continues to crack down on inflation. Here's NPR's Scott Horsley. This was the Fed's eighth rate increase in less than a year. It's also the smallest since last March. The Fed spent much of last year playing catch-up with aggressive rate increases as it tried to contain the highest inflation in four decades. Now that price hikes have eased a bit, the central bank's taking a more cautious approach. The slowdown is designed to give Fed policymakers more time to assess the impact that higher borrowing costs are having on the economy. Consumer spending and job growth have both slowed in recent months. If possible, the Fed hopes to curb inflation without tipping the economy into recession. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Inflation is still well above the central bank's 2% target. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. It's been nearly three years since the COVID pandemic forced Beacon Hill legislators to adopt rules that allow members to debate and vote remotely. Now the House is set to rescind those rules and require lawmakers to come into the chamber to conduct most of their business. Here's WBUR Steve Brown. House Speaker Ron Mariano says being in the chamber is important for the exchange of ideas and for discussion of the issues. In advocating for in-person sessions, Mariano says he wants newly elected members to experience that. As ideas germinate and you start to hear different opinions and different sides of issues, you, you can change your mind and opinions evolve. So uh, I think it's part of the legislative process. It always has been and always should be. Mariano says the House will continue to allow hybrid committee hearings and that they must be live streamed and archived also says citizens would be given the opportunity to testify remotely during those hearings. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Also today, the Massachusetts House declared Democrat Kristen Kasner the winner of a contested state representative seat on the North Shore. Incumbent Republican Lenny Mira was originally listed the winner of the November election, but after a recount, Kasner was declared the winner by a single vote. Mira challenged the outcome in court. Lawmakers, though, had the final say. Starting today, lobster and crab fishermen are banning are banned from working in a large part of Massachusetts Bay for the next three months. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is putting the ban in place to protect endangered right whales from ship strikes and getting entangled in fishing gear. Beth Gassoni is the executive director of the Massachusetts Lobstermen's Association. She says the ban usually lasts for the month of April only when the whales are most active. They have anywhere from 300 to 600 lobster pots in this area, and the price of lobster right now is higher than it has been. So to think that they're going to be now shut out for an additional two months is unacceptable when the risk is not there. Cassoni says the group is taking legal action to try to stop the closure. And a decision is expected sometime this afternoon about whether public schools in Nantucket will reopen tomorrow. The schools were closed today because of a ransomware attack on the school district's computer system. The superintendent says security experts and school staff are trying to restore computers and Internet service. Pretty cold out there now, 30 degrees, and it's heading downward all the way down to the teens overnight tonight. Tomorrow starts up gray, then turns sunny around 38 degrees. That's before the frigid air moves in for Friday and Saturday. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. And Jarl and Pamela Moan, thanking the people who make public radio great every day, and also those who listen. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The FBI spent about three and a half hours today at President Biden's vacation house in Delaware looking for classified documents that may have been improperly retained. Biden did not speak about that today. He did meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on the U.S. debt ceiling. And we also have some news about who may challenge Donald Trump to be the Republican Party's nominee for president next year. All in all, a busy day in and around Washington. So a couple of our correspondents are here to break it down for us, starting with NPR Scott Detrow at the White House. Scott, tell me about what the FBI found in that search of the president's second home in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. Well, well, let's start with what they did not find. And Biden's lawyers, his agents, did not find any more documents with classified markings. But Bob Bauer says the agents 
agents did take some materials and handwritten notes that appear to be from Biden's time as vice president. Uh, And that's interesting because today is the second time the FBI has taken handwritten notes. They did that about two weeks ago when they searched his Wilmington residence. Uh, But neither the White House nor Biden's personal lawyer have provided details about what exactly these handwritten notes are. Uh, I asked Ian Sams, the White House spokesman handling this topic about this today. They believe that, uh, you know, some of the materials that uh, were seen and were taken, they appear to relate to his time as vice president. I think that, you know, they want to make sure that the Justice Department has access to the information that they need to sift through materials as part of this ongoing investigation. And so, uh, you know, I'm not going to characterize too much of the underlying contents. Sam's also would not say how many physical documents were taken today. So, so, so still a lot of questions about the exact scope of this. This is the third place now where the FBI has taken material from Biden. Is this becoming a drag on, on the presidency? I mean, definitely. Re- remember, they spent 13 hours searching the president's home a week and a half ago. Uh, Biden staffers found those initial documents at the at Biden's Penn Biden Center offices back in November. There were those additional documents at his home in Wilmington that Biden lawyers found. And throughout all of this, it's become a big part of the story. The White House has consistently withheld key details. Another one right now is that the White House still has not confirmed or denied, despite a lot of attempts from like from people like me, uh, a CBS report from earlier this week that the FBI also searched the Penn Biden Center last year. The White House is becoming a bit more responsive on this. It's worth noting today was the first time that Ian Sams held an in-person press conference on all of this. And President Biden, for his part, had a high-profile meeting with the Republican Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, to talk about the debt ceiling. What came out of that? Yeah, the meeting took place behind closed doors, so we don't know too much. We do know this, that Republicans want to use this this moment of lifting the debt ceiling to try and force spending cuts, like what happened during the Obama administration. The White House has been trying to call their bluff and saying, you know, Republicans have at times talked about cutting very popular programs like Medicare, Social Security. Is that what they want to do? Uh, But McCarthy uh, said to our colleague Deirdre Walsh that there are plenty of room for other cuts in other government programs. Think about uh, think about the budget that's all discretionary. There's trillions of dollars there. So there's a lot of places. There's likely a lot of time, especially in Washington, thinking of how much time there is before a deal is needed to be hit uh, before the true deadline hits. But as of right now, neither side is budging. All right. So that's the view at the White House. Let's pull the camera back a bit and bring in NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben. Danielle, any idea how this debt ceiling fight is likely to play with voters? Somewhat. I mean, one place we can look is 2011, when uh, there was a major debt ceiling fight that led to the U.S.'s credit rating being downgraded. Now, how that played out was that afterwards, people really blamed Congress more than President Obama, and they blamed the GOP more than Democrats. So that is one potential data point we can look to as to how this might play out. However, if you're if you were watching the campaign trail in 2022 or talking to voters, you know that candidates don't talk a lot about America's fiscal situation, reducing debt lately, and voters don't talk about it either. This Mm. isn't a topic that gets people fired up the way that inflation does, or the way that a lot of social issues do. The one thing to think about is what will get them fired up, which is if we hit the debt ceiling or get close enough that it causes major economic problems, which this could. I mean, at that point, how polls might look is going to be far down on the list of priorities compared to things like recession, job loss, a plunging stock market, people's retirement accounts suddenly shrinking. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, there would be political repercussions to that, But issue one at that point would be riding the ship after a really unprecedented blow. As you are looking ahead to possible future scenarios, let's talk about 
what the 2024 Republican presidential race might look like. Sure. Because now former President Donald Trump has a challenger. Uh, former South Carolina governor and U.N. ambassador Nikki Haley says she is officially going to announce her run for president in mid-February. How is she likely to fit into the field? Well, on the one hand, when you talk to voters, when I have talked to Republican voters about potential 2024 candidates, she's relatively well liked. The voters that know her think she's smart, think that she is capable, think that she did a good job being President Trump's U.N. ambassador. But then again, that's if voters know her. She is most certainly not as well known, of course, as President Trump and not as well known as someone like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. She's just not as splashy as those candidates are. One other thing to think about is that she has occupied an interesting middle ground for quite a while. Trump affiliated, but not Trumpy in her political style. And the question is how long that can stick before she's attacked for flip-flopping on things. For example, after the January 6th attack on the Capitol, she harshly rebuked President Trump. And then a little bit later, she backpedaled and she said, well, the Republican Party needs Trump, and she started praising him again. Uh, similarly, at one point, she said she wouldn't run if Trump ran for president, but now it appears that, well, yes, she will. Hmm. So what we can say is that I'm, I'm certain that we in the media will be asking her about some of her uh, position shifts and that her fellow candidates will push her on that as well. Trump, of course, reshaped the party in his four years as president. He's now been running for a few months. Is he as dominant this time as he was the last two times? I mean, he's, of course, like I said, the best known candidate. He has that solid base of loyalists, which he didn't have when he jumped in in 2015. Right. But there are good reasons to question his dominance. For example, his latest fundraising report shows that he took in just up, just shy of 10 million dollars since his November announcement. That's a lot of money, but it's not. It's slower than other well-known candidates have done in the past. And. One other thing is that early polling shows that he could have a strong challenge from someone like Ron DeSantis. Now, early polling isn't the most reliable, but what it shows is that Trump is vulnerable. What's interesting is once people like Nikki Haley and other people jump in, do they take votes from Trump or take support from each other or both? And I want to end by returning to Scott Detrow at the White House, where President Biden still has not announced whether or not he's running for re-election. Briefly, what's the outlook there? Well, and he says he hasn't made a final decision either. Normally, for a first-term president, this would be a no-brainer. But but remember, Biden is the oldest president ever. And when he first ran, he talked a lot about being a bridge to the next generation, things like that. I will note he's spending a lot of time certainly acting like he's running again, drawing attention to accomplishments so far. I was covering a fundraiser Biden did yesterday at a swanky Upper East Side apartment. And it stood out to me so many times that he talked about what Democrats need to run on uh, next election and even seemed to talk about goals for a second term. All right. And Pierre Scott Detrow and Danielle Kurtzleben, thank you both. Sure thing. Thank you. One year after retiring from professional football, Tom Brady announced today he is retiring from professional football. Good morning, guys. I'll get to the point right away. I'm retiring. We're good. The all-time great quarterback, who is now 45 years old, posted a short video on social media. I won't be long-winded. You only get one super emotional retirement essay, and I used mine up last year. 
In that emotional essay, Brady said, "Now it is time to focus my time and energy on other things that require my attention." But 40 days later, he unretired and came back to play his 23rd season in the NFL. Let's go! This season, his Tampa Bay Buccaneers won their division and made the playoffs, but lost in the first round. As Brady walked off the field that day, ESPN commentator Troy Aikman took a moment to reflect. If in fact this is it for Tom Brady, all I can say on behalf of all football fans is thank you and appreciate the memories. What a career. Brady expressed his gratitude as he concluded the post-game press conference. Just very grateful for the respect, and I and,、uh, hope I gave the same thing back to you guys. So thank you very much. Appreciate it. In a statement today, Bucks general manager Jason Light said, "We won't ever forget the wins or the accolades, and his influence will be felt for years to come." Brady delivered Tampa a Super Bowl title in 2021. That was his seventh Super Bowl victory. At the ring ceremony after that game, he looked back on how far he'd come. I was a six-round pick. You know, I was 199th pick. I never forgot that. I still haven't forgot that to this day. He was drafted in 2000 by the New England Patriots, where he played for 20 seasons and won his previous six Super Bowls. There were raw feelings in the Northeast when Tom Brady left the team, but last year the Patriots congratulated him on his first retirement, tweeting, "It was quite the ride. Thank you and congratulations, Tom Brady." This morning, the team retweeted that post and said, "Quite the ride indeed. Thank you again, Tom Brady." The Pats also tweeted three goat emojis, shorthand for greatest of all time, as did many fellow NFL players. Brady addressed those fellow teammates and competitors today, as well as his family and friends. Thank you guys for allowing me to live my absolute dream. I wouldn't change a thing. Last May, Fox Sports announced that Brady would be joining them as a TV analyst after his playing career. Though we should note that in his 23-year career, he never went more than three straight years without a Super Bowl appearance. So I guess all we're saying here is: Should Tom Brady decide to pull a Tom Brady again, the stats are on his side to make the big game next year in 2024. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Pope Francis makes a passionate plea in the name of Africa, saying Africa is not a mine to be stripped or a terrain to be plundered. That story is coming up in 15 minutes on WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. Stocks picked up territory on Wall Street. Not a lot for the Dow, just a tiny percent. It closed at 34,093. S&P and Nasdaq had greater gains. The S&P rose more than one percent to close at 41.19. The Nasdaq gained two percent to finish the day at 11,816. Two institutions in Worcester are teaming up to fight a shortage of nurses in the workforce. St. Vincent Hospital and Assumption University have created a program to allow nursing students to complete their clinical training on a medical. Surgical floor at the hospital. It's the hospital's first designated education unit. Fifteen Assumption student nurses are currently taking part in the program. Business news comes up at six thirty on Marketplace. It is now four nineteen.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by WorkBar, flexible co-working and private offices for individuals and teams in Greater Boston. Quincy and Framingham coming soon. WorkBar.com slash WBUR. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR supports your commitment to curiosity. Order yours now to save 10%. Visit WBUR.org. Bundle up tonight should be cold, sinking to about 19 degrees. Tomorrow rising to 38 for a high with a cloudy start and a sunny second part of the day. Gusty winds tomorrow. Then tomorrow night kind of brutal, windy overnight. Temperatures about 12 for Friday. Not a lot higher. Sunny and blustery about 18 degrees tops. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the candidate search process. Businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates, all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. This week, we're bringing you stories of this year's first-time Grammy nominees. And we begin the series with Omar Apollo. Evergreen, he controls me. He's an artist who, just 10 years ago, didn't even know how to sing. But he quickly rose from making music at his parents' house in Hobart, Indiana, to snagging a Grammy nod for Best New Artist. A few weeks back, my team and I met up with Apollo at a sprawling park atop the Hollywood Hills. And I'm 5'2", so when I met him, I suddenly felt really, really short. You're like 6'5", 6'6"? 6'5", yeah. 6'5". Okay. Are your parents both really tall? No, short Mexican people. What happened to you? I don't know. I'm the milkman's son. (laughs) Now, we have been told that Omar Apollo loved nature. And so his team said a great place to meet him would be this very park. Because they said there was a trail here that he likes to hike. But is there like a spot you normally go to? I've actually never been here. Oh, you serious? Oh, my God. He says his actual favorite place to hang out is at home. But we weren't invited there. Fine. So we kept playing along with this joke. Yeah, like, I come here and I just come over want to, you know, alleviate the pressure of the world <laughs> that has been weighing on me as a young Mexican-American. Because, no, baby, there's something you know. Apollo released his first full-length album, Ivory, last year. And now he has more than 13 million monthly listeners on Spotify. But it all started when he uploaded this track, You Got Me, to the streaming service back in 2017. It's barely two minutes long, but when he woke up the next day... He says the ballad had already racked up tens of thousands of streams. As we settled in on a long wooden bench overlooking a canyon, he told me about the exact moment he knew he wanted to pursue music for a living. He was 17 and had just seen an advertisement inside a store. There was like a little microphone there that said, like, make music. And I was like, 
damn, I want to make music. So then I got a job at McDonald's and then saved up to get a laptop, saved up to get a microphone, and then like just with those two I started. And this was in your bedroom, you were starting to record music, right? My garage, yeah. It was a winter. It was like negative 10 degrees. And I'm every time I'm like trying to sing, I could see my breath. And I didn't want to sing in the house, I was so embarrassed. Even my dad told me I was terrible. <laughs> so I would go on YouTube and I'd practice for hours and try to learn how to give natural vibrato. Did um, you get it? Yeah. And then I was like, okay, now that I learned it, you know, maybe three weeks later, I sang in front of him. He was like, oh, it sounded good. And I was like, oh, this yeah. is this is how life is. Yeah, and after that, I was like, oh, I can learn things. That's You're literally what well. I do. <laughs> start from zero. No one wants to start from zero. I want to talk a little bit about the range in your music. Like, on your last album, Ivory, was that deliberate to have this wide range of of sound. I just, I really love music. I grew up with mariachis and corridos. I grew up with soul music, dance music. I grew up with like the super romantic, conservative stuff that my mom listened to. And then like also like the explicit, you know, bravado rap, you know? So when I'm making music, one, it's probably ADHD. Two, it's like, there's something great in every genre, you know? Mm -hmm. So. Even for Ivory, I was like, damn, I like rapping. I'm gonna rap on Tamagotchi, like, and just talk. And then I wanted to make like a really sad, soulful ballad about unrequited love. I guess it's just a reflection of how I feel. What about when it came to an El Ovido? First of all, so is, I, it, is it fair to call that corrido? Yeah, it's like a corrido. It's like a mariachi traditional classic type of song. Yeah. With like a little bit of, you know, R&B. Arrancaste todo que quedaba Por razones que no aceptaba Cariño, yo fui buen amante En El Olvido for that song specifically, I was like Juan Gabriel and like Pedro Infantes and like even my grandma would show me stuff that I've, you know, learned from. And I think I just wanted to perform a song that made me feel like I was at home, that nostalgia that I carry, you know what I mean, everywhere I go. You know, you're the son of Mexican immigrants, you're bilingual, you're from the Midwest. You've also talked about identifying as queer. Like, do you feel like now that you are this big performer, people are making you think more about your identity? Yeah, for sure. Definitely. But Is it ex exhausting? For sure. Mm -hmm. But I don't give that too much power. But that was definitely in the beginning, like, a big thing. I was like, oh, damn, every headline is, you know, queer Mexican immigrant. I was just like, I was like, what about the album I just put out? <laughs> like, is it a lot of weight then to be seen as a musician that's supposed to represent being the child of Mexican immigrants, also being queer, also being from the Midwest, like all of that? It, does it feel like a lot of responsibility? I guess I no, just want to understand it that it doesn't more. feel like responsibility, which is good. That's good. 
It's because it's like so effortlessly me. It's not like I have to like uh, work towards being gay. <laughs> so what was it like when you first learned that you were nominated for Best New Artist? I was in Atlanta in my hotel room. Then my manager and all my friends like are knocking on my door like with like cameras and stuff. And I'm like, please, like this is gonna give me so much anxiety. And so then they said it and I, you know, everyone tackles me on the bed, you know, and then uh, I kick everyone out, call my dad, call my mom. My dad's at work, he's got his little cook hat on. He's like, congratulations, like, so, you know, so cute. Yeah, the whole day, everything everything I did felt Grammy nominated. The food, I got my nails done. I was like, oh, it's Grammy nominated nails yeah. right here. What'd you get your nails? What did you get on your nails? It's just sheer pink. I've been simple lately, you know? Well, Omar Apollo, it has been such a joy to be sitting here on this bench overlooking this valley talking to you. Thank you. I love this bench. I've actually been coming here for Stop years. Stop it! Right, let me do it all over. Who you trying to be bad for? What you making me bad for? It's on my I don't know, say I don't know. It's on my I don't know, say I don't know. It's on my I don't know, say I don't know. It's on my, it's on my I don't know. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR, a nice start to February, but a cold one. Temperatures tonight should get down to about 19 degrees. Tomorrow, starting off with clouds, then the sunshine should break through. Windy, a little bit milder, reaching 38 degrees. Then for Friday, sunny and blustery temperatures, about 18 for a high. 30 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. People come up to me and thank me for supporting WBUR, something that they believe in. Those are the people we want to reach, people that not only support and believe in what BUR does, but believe in what businesses that support BUR stand for. Explore how you can become a WBUR underwriter at WBUR.org sponsorship. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The FBI carried out a search at President Biden's vacation home in Rehoboth, Delaware today for additional classified documents. NPR's Tamara Keith reports the search comes after several sets of classified records were discovered at Biden's residence in Wilmington last month. President Biden's personal attorney, Bob Bauer, said that no documents with classified markings were found. However, and and this also happened with the search of President Biden's Wilmington residence, the Department of Justice did take some materials and handwritten notes uh, that will be reviewed further. It's not clear what that review might yield. Bauer said that these documents were from Biden's time as vice president. That's NPR's Tamara Keith reporting. 
Medical services could be disrupted for tens of thousands of veterans when the pandemic health emergency declaration expires in May. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports the Secretary of Veterans Affairs is calling on Congress to preserve vets' access to telehealth. Veterans' health care was one of many things that went virtual during the height of the pandemic, and the VA says increased use of telehealth saved lives. Public health emergency rules meant doctors at the VA in Boise, Idaho, could give prescriptions across state lines to a vet in rural Colorado. VA Secretary Dennis McDonough says his clinicians are worried. They're really anxious about what happens to their patients, their veterans, in rural setting. They're worried about what happens if, you know, we're not in a position to maintain those prescriptions. McDonough urged Congress to preserve these measures when the public health emergency declarations expire in May. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. Stocks traded higher today on Wall Street. The Dow was up six points, the Nasdaq up 231. This is NPR News in Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Ed Markey is renewing calls for Congress to pass a tax on large oil companies. It comes as ExxonMobil and Chevron have reported record earnings. Big Oil's annual 2022 profits are expected to reach $190 billion, shattering their previous record in 2011 by nearly 50%. Markey and other top Democrats say the company should be subject to a windfall profits tax. That's a government tax on businesses that have benefited from economic expansion. Oil companies argue the tax would be a disincentive for them to expand drilling and increase the energy supply at a time when energy is in high demand. Investigators in Western Mass have released new images in a decades-old case of a little girl who went missing. Ten-year-old Holly Peranian disappeared from her grandparents' cottage in Sturbridge in 1993. Her remains were found three months later in Brimfield. Today, investigators released photos of a tank top that was found at the scene. The investigators hope the public can share any information they may have on who owned the shirt or where it was sold or manufactured. The top will be sent for uh, new forensic analysis to expand on earlier testing. A Back Bay online betting and fantasy sports firm is laying off workers as part of a reorganization. DraftKings said today it will cut 140 jobs. Fifteen of those workers are based in Massachusetts. DraftKings employs more than 1,300 people in the state. And the Boston Symphony Orchestra today unveiled the lineup for its 85th Tanglewood season. NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me will kick off the summer series in the Berkshires with a live show June 22nd. Other scheduled acts include James Taylor and Alison Krauss with Robert Plant. The Boston Pops will also perform a series of movie-themed concert nights. Tickets go on sale next month. 30 degrees now in the Boston area, clear and cold tonight down in the upper teens. Tomorrow should start up gray, but then turn up sunny eventually, about 38 degrees, before the frigid air moves in for Friday and for Saturday as well. 30 degrees now in the Boston area at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, 
plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The Pope has been addressing a crowd of a million Catholics at an outdoor mass on the second day of his trip to the Democratic Republic of Congo. The scenes as he was greeted on the street were ecstatic. Pope Francis has described his trip to the DRC and later to South Sudan as a pilgrimage of peace. Both countries have been mired in intractable conflicts for years. NPR's West Africa correspondent, Emmanuel Akinwochu, has been following the Pope's journey and joins us now. Hi there. Hi, Wana. So start by telling us, what was it like in the capital of Kinshasa today? As you can imagine, people were joyous. It was like carnival. People singing Viva Papa. They've been lining the streets just to catch a glimpse of him in his Mobile. And then Mass this morning, which was full of music. Like this very Congolese liturgy. You know, this is the largest community of Catholics in Africa, about half of the country's 95 million people. And it's the first time a Pope is visiting in almost 40 years. You know, the majority of people in DRC weren't even alive to remember it because the population is so young. So it's really a landmark moment. The open-air mass at the main airport this morning was attended by about a million people, according to some estimates. So a lot of joy, but also a lot of somberness. This is a country that has suffered years of bloody conflict, and today he called for forgiveness. Here he made a direct call for an end to violence and an appeal to armed groups to lay down their arms and embrace mercy. Then later on he met people from the east of the country who've suffered attacks and sexual violence. Mm. Remind us, if you can, just how dire is the situation in the Democratic Republic of Congo right now? It's been so grave for millions of people, especially in the east of the country. The roots of this violence is from the fallout of the Rwandan genocide in 1994, and several armed groups afterwards sprung up there. They're now controlling mineral resources in parts of the country, and they use it to fund their activities. An offensive by one group called M23 has led to intense fighting and has displaced about 6 million people. Pope Francis is meeting some representatives from Eastern DRC, but more importantly, the intent of his trip is to highlight that these conflicts have been going on for a long time and to rally support to end it. And I understand that Pope Francis has also been speaking out about the condition of the country in quite strong terms, including talking about economic colonialism. Yes, his comments have been really striking. Yesterday, he also gave a speech to political and civil society groups. Let's hear what he had to say. He says, hands off the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's not a mine to be stripped or a terrain to be plundered. Stop choking Africa. It's clear that to the Pope, the DRC embodies many of the themes he's become known for. How inequality, exploitation, climate change drive poverty and violence. This is one of the most biodiverse areas in the world, with vast mineral resources like gold, diamonds, copper, most of the world's cobalt. But the companies that mine these resources, sometimes backed by wealthy countries, have been accused of getting rich from exploitative or corrupt deals. So Pope Francis's statements can be read as a rebuke of that. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwoto in Lagos. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Our next story takes us to the coastal town of Laguna in southern Brazil, where bottlenose dolphins hunt for prey. That's the sound of them zeroing in on a school of fish. What's unique about this place is that as the dolphins herd fish around the local lagoons, people hurl their nets at the same time. It's an example of cross-species collaboration that turns out to be beneficial to both. Mauricio Contour of Oregon State University is lead author on a new study about that relationship. It's out this week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure. You've watched this cross-species collaboration take place. Paint a picture of it. What does it look like? Yeah, so um, this interaction takes place in the canal of a lagoon that connects the lagoon to the ocean in Laguna, Sounder, Brazil. And if you go there every day, you will see many artisanal fishers waiting for the moment that the dolphins approach the coast. So it's up to the dolphins. The dolphins decide when it's going to happen. Not all of them. Some some of the dolphins in the population, what the locals call is a good dolphin, the cooperative <laughs> dolphins. Yeah. So when a good dolphin approach, everybody will run into the water and get ready for, for the interaction. So they will stay in the water with the, uh, the water more or less up to their chest and wait for a specific behavior cue that the, the dolphins do, a sudden deep dive that they do in front of the fishers, and they will interpret that as the right time and place to cast, cast their nets. Hmm. This cooperative relationship has been going on for more than a century, and your study quantified the benefits to humans and dolphins. You found the people netted many more fish as a result, but what's in it for the dolphins? So uh, the hypothesis would be that they're also catching more fish like the humans are doing. But this is really tricky to measure because, again, the water is very murky. You cannot just put a camera and see what's going on underwater. So what we did was combining a couple of tools, drones, uh, underwater microphones, and a sonar camera that uses uh, sounds to generate images, much like an ultrasound for uh, pregnancy tests. All, all of our evidence suggests that the dolphins only go after the fish when the fishers do their part in the right time. For example, casting that net in the right time and place, that makes it much easier for the dolphin to, to catch the fish. How unusual is it to find an example of human-animal collaboration where both species benefit? These uh, human-wildlife cooperation, they're uh, a rare phenomena at a global scale. There is a couple of, uh, of cases in Myanmar and India and others that have been extincted already, for example, in the uh, eastern coast of Australia and in other places um, like the northwest of African continent. So it's a rare phenomenon, and our data over the past 15 years have been suggesting that it's becoming rare in that place in Laguna as well. Is there a significance to these findings beyond a lagoon in southern Brazil? Uh, yes. The way I like to see this, I think it's a good example of how humans and wildlife and humans in nature in general can benefit in a mutually positive way. So. Uh, most of the interactions that we have with nature it tends to be um, negative from one side. You can see like overfishing, overhunting, you know, degradation of the habitat and pollution, and the list the list goes on. So uh, trying to preserve a, a cultural practice that is beneficial for both parties, I think, is uh, inspiring. And by preserving 
cultural diversity, we can indirectly uh, preserve biological diversity. Mauricio Contour is a behavioral ecologist at Oregon State University. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. After making controversial changes to K-12 education in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis is now looking to overhaul the state's colleges and its universities. A new board he's appointed has begun reshaping policies at the state's liberal arts university, the new college in Sarasota. Yesterday, the governor's appointees fired the university's president, and they began working to phase out programs promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion. NPR's Greg Allen reports. Governor DeSantis dropped a bombshell last month when he appointed six new members to the new college's board of trustees. They include conservative educational activists who immediately issued pledges to overhaul a university known for its progressive educational policies. It's a school that's long suffered from inadequate state funding and a declining enrollment. But at a news conference yesterday, DeSantis said he believes the school's problems aren't financial, but ideological. The mission has been, I think, more into the DEI, CRT, the gender ideology, rather than what a liberal arts education should be. And so we're going to be able, I think, to, to, to offer some reforms. DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, and CRT, critical race theory, are two phrases that come up a lot now in DeSantis' news conferences. He's required all public colleges and universities to report on how much they spend on DEI programs. DeSantis says the Republican-controlled legislature will soon bring him a bill outlawing them in Florida. The new college's new board met in Sarasota yesterday. One of the first items raised by new trustee Christopher Rufo was a motion to abolish DEI programs at the school. This goes against the founding mission of the college. It goes against the will of Florida voters and against the stated vision of the governor. Dominated by the new conservative members, the board voted to begin the process of rooting out DEI programs at the school. Also at the meeting was a large group of students, parents, and alumni concerned about the university's future. Elisa Mitchell said her son is a first-year student at the school. He and his classmates have done nothing to deserve the type of disruption that is currently happening to their education. Mitchell had a dig at the six new board members, all of one of whom are from out of state. As an actual Florida taxpayer, someone whose voice and vote counts just as much as anyone else's. I want to say that I think this school is an excellent use of my taxpayer money. The antagonistic and at times boisterous audience put the new board members on the defensive. While it's a small school with an enrollment around 700, DeSantis' pledge to make it into a conservative institution has brought a storm of outrage that has bothered some new board members. One of the new trustees, Matthew Spaulding, is a dean at Hillsdale College, a Christian school that some of DeSantis' administration say is a model for the new college. Yesterday, he responded to the criticism. Some have said this uh, recent appointments amount to a partisan takeover of the college. This is not correct. <laughs> the new college audience clearly wasn't convinced. DeSantis promises lawmakers will allocate $15 million in new funds for the new college this year and $10 million more in succeeding years. Most distressing to students, parents, and faculty yesterday was the board's vote to fire Patricia Oker, the school's popular president. She arrived at the meeting expecting the dismissal and apologized to those who wanted her to stay. But I'm going to say publicly, I do not believe that students are being indoctrinated at New College. 
Oker's replacement as interim president at the new college is another indication that change is coming. Board members voted to put someone close to DeSantis, his former education commissioner, Richard Corcoran, into the job. Greg Allen, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up next, how an activist in Myanmar lost nearly everything but still has hope. That's coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by CB Team in Lexington. Traditional as well as accelerated cognitive behavioral therapy for kids and adults with OCD and anxiety. CBTeam.org. Bundle up tonight. Should be cold, sticking to about 19 degrees, and then for tomorrow, rising to about 38 for high. A cloudy start and a sunny second half of the day. Gusty winds tomorrow. Tomorrow night, pretty brutal. Windy overnight. Temperatures are right about 12 degrees. And then on Friday, not a lot higher. Sunny and blustery, about 18 degrees tops, but the wind making it feel more like 14 below zero. And then Saturday should be sunny with daytime highs back around 18 degrees. 30 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 4.49. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer. When the Japanese pufferfish wants to find a mate, it sets out to impress with all it has. Its fins and a sandy ocean floor. And over several days and nights without sleep, it carves the most incredible, symmetrical sculpture in the sand, a huge, circular array of ridges, troughs, peaks and valleys, decorated with perfectly placed shells scavenged from the seabed. It's beautiful, not just to a pufferfish, but to our eyes too. And why does it create this thing of beauty? It just knows it's what it needs to do for love. Fortunately, it's so much easier for you to create something beautiful. Send your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR, and in doing so, you'll create stories that enrich and inspire all of us. Visit WBUR.org to get started. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. It's been two years since Myanmar's military seized power. A civil war there has killed thousands of civilians and forced 1.2 million people from their homes. The conflict shows no sign of ending. NPR's Michael Sullivan has this story of a family of democracy activists whose struggle against the military has lasted for decades. Democracy activists Neil Artain and Cha Meu known by his nickname, Code Jimmy, got to know each other in Taiwati prison in the early 2000s. In between the beatings and other abuse at the hands of their military jailers, she says, they grew close, secretly passing notes to keep each other's spirits up. Released in 2005, they were married a year later and decided to have a baby soon after. From the jungle hideout that's now her temporary home, Nilartain remembers that time. When I was pregnant, Kojimi would hold my stomach as we chanted Buddhist mantras of love to our daughter. But because of the political uncertainty, the turmoil in our country, we apologize to our daughter too for what might come in the future. That's because the military was still firmly in control and she and Kojimi could be arrested again at any time. And he was 
in August 2007, at the time of the so-called Saffron Revolution against Myanmar's military rulers. So Nilar Ten and her infant daughter went into hiding. We were hiding along with some student leaders at an apartment when the authorities started searching nearby. The sound of the babies crying could get us all arrested. So I asked my daughter to be quiet while I breastfed her. She seemed to understand and was silent, and we managed to escape. But after that, I decided I had to give my daughter to her grandparents. It was too dangerous for her to be with me, and that decision hurt very much. Not long after, Nilar Ten was arrested again as well. Five years later, as the military gradually loosened its control over the country, both she and Kojimi were released again and reunited with their daughter. When I first saw my daughter, I was very happy and wanted to hug her, but I didn't at first because I felt I had to approach her very slowly. Later, while she and I were waiting at the airport for Kojimi to return, she held my hand very tight and she told me she was afraid I would disappear again. Then Kojimi arrived and we were finally all together again. It was a blissful experience. Not just blissful, but a new start. After spending so much time in prison over so many years, it was a chance to be normal, to be a family. Both of us were incredibly excited to start talking to our daughter after all those years. We got to know her by learning what she liked, what she didn't, and how to be around her. It was a remarkable time in my life. And a remarkable time in the country in general as the military continued a series of reforms after decades in power, holding parliamentary elections and instituting other reforms that attracted foreign investment and helped improve people's lives. Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy won a landslide election victory in 2015, and while the military still wielded significant power, it coexisted uneasily with Suu Kyi's elected government. Then in November 2020, the NLD won another landslide victory, and the military decided it had had enough. Overnight, Myanmar's military has seized control of the country. On February 1st, 2021, hours before the new parliament was set to convene, Myanmar's military formally seized power, detaining Suu Kyi and many other senior politicians on bogus charges claiming election fraud. She's since been convicted by a military-run court of several different offenses, and is now serving a term of more than 30 years in jail. For Neil Artain, it was a wake-up call and a warning that the life she and her family had been building was now at risk. When the coup occurred, I called Kojimi and told him to run away. At the time, I was a volunteer at a COVID center. 
He told me he would come get me, but I told him no, it was too dangerous. I told him not to come because I thought his freedom was more important. Less than two weeks later, arrest warrants were issued by the military for Ko Jimmy and six other prominent activists for inciting unrest through their social media posts urging resistance to the coup. The man who served 15 years in prison for his role in the 1988 uprising against the military was on the run again until his arrest that October. After his arrest, we didn't have any contact with him, and we had no idea where he was being held. Then, on January 23rd, they announced he's been convicted on terrorism charges and sentenced to death. We saw him that day on state TV. He was very skinny, but his smile and his eyes show us his bravery and his spirit. In late July, with little fanfare, Code Jimmy and three others were hanged by the military at Yangon's infamous insane prison, where many democracy activists did time during decades of military rule. Neil Artin never even got a chance to say goodbye. We learned officially about his execution only from the state newspapers that announced it. I was devastated, but I reminded myself that I was not alone. Not alone, she says, because her situation mirrors that of people all over the country. She lives now on the run in the east of the country. Her 15-year-old daughter is in exile for her safety. A daughter Neil Artain is very, very proud of. One who wrote this essay praising her parents' choices after the coup. My daughter wrote in the essay, I don't know what kind of challenge I will face, but I will follow the footsteps of what my dad and my mom did. I will fight for freedom, justice, and democracy. Neil Artain is in touch with her daughter infrequently these days because of the danger to both of them. But they are in touch. And her message to her daughter, she says, is simple. Be strong. Michael Sullivan, NPR News, on the Thai-Myanmar border. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at AE cf.org. And from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. This is 90.9 WBUR. Checking sports. Bruins are in Toronto tonight to meet the Maple Leafs. 7.30 start time. Celtics are also at work tonight. They host the Brooklyn Nets. 
7.30 game time as well. Clear and chilly overnight tonight, falling to the upper teens. Then tomorrow starts up with clouds. Eventually the sunshine moves in, up around 38 degrees before the blustery air moves in for Friday and for Saturday too. 30 degrees now. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Today, the funeral for Tyree Nichols was held in Memphis. Nichols died three days after he was beaten by police who pulled him over for a traffic stop. The city of Memphis has vowed to release all the audio and video associated with the fatal incident once the investigation is complete. It's Wednesday, February 1st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by a quarter percentage point today as part of its ongoing campaign against inflation. For decades, a Christian evangelical group ran a bipartisan political breakfast, but controversy in recent years has led Congress to assert more control of the event. There were concerns raised and expressed. Uh, Some just involved a, a lack of clarity from an ethics perspective about how the event was structured and organized. These stories, the forecast, and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Funeral services for Tyree Nichols brought social justice leaders from across the country to Memphis today. Christopher Blank with member station WKNO says the service for the black motorist killed last month following a traffic stop became a call to action for police reform. Don't give up the Relatives of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Eric Garner came to support the grieving family. The Reverend Al Sharpton's eulogy called out the five black officers now charged with second-degree murder. In the city that Dr. King lost his life, not far away from that balcony, you beat a brother to death. Kamala Harris sat with Nichols' mother. The vice president called on Congress to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And we should not delay... And we will not be denied. It is non-negotiable. For NPR News, I'm Christopher Blank in Memphis. The European Union is introducing a new initiative to combat both climate change and competition from the U.S. and China. Terry Schultz reports on what Brussels calls the Green Deal Industrial Plan. EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen says the bloc must boost its competitiveness, particularly in the face of President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, which Europe fears gives U.S. industry an edge. Von der Leyen says the EU must seize this moment. In the next years, the shape of the net zero economy and where it is located will be decided and we want to be an important part of this net zero industry that we need globally. The Green Deal industrial plan would allow EU governments to grant more aid to companies and would redirect some 250 billion euros in joint funds to support manufacturing of electric vehicles and other green products. EU leaders will discuss the proposals next week. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. A federal judge is placing new bail restrictions on Sam Bankman-Fried. He's the founder of the now-collapsed crypto exchange F He's currently under house arrest and accused of one of the largest financial frauds in U.S. history. 
Here's NPR's David Gura. Judge Lewis Kaplan says Sam Bankman-Fried is no longer allowed to contact or communicate with current or former employees of FTX or Alameda. That's the crypto hedge fund he founded. Prosecutors say Bankman-Fried had been trying to communicate with them using secure messaging apps. That led the judge to impose another restriction on Bankman-Fried's bail conditions. He's not allowed to use encrypted or ephemeral call or messaging apps, including, but not limited to, Signal. Bankman-Fried allegedly directed his subordinates to use those apps when he was running FTX. David Gura, NPR News. New York. The Federal Reserve isn't giving up in terms of its inflation fight, announcing today for an eighth straight time since last March it's upping its benchmark interest rate, this time by a quarter point. That also signaling there are signs of easing in inflation. It remains committed to continuing to fight inflation with higher rates. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Governor Maura Healey is applauding a decision that's helping to move forward a proposed wind farm project in northern Maine. Maine's Public Utilities Commission gave its backing to the project yesterday. The Massachusetts Department of Energy Resources has agreed to buy up to 40 percent of the farm's power. Jack Shapiro of the Natural Resources Council of Maine says the project is in the public interest. It's a great example of the kind of collaboration we're going to need to bring the renewable energy that we need to address climate change online, as well as to get us off our dependence on fossil fuels. The 1,000-megawatt project would be New England's largest onshore wind farm. If it passes all regulatory hurdles, it could begin delivering energy to the grid by 2028. Massachusetts House Speaker Ron Mariano is noncommittal on whether his chamber will seek to pass tax relief proposals this year. He said last month he wanted to see what happened in a January 24th revenue hearing before he made decisions. After that hearing, budget writers agreed that state revenues will remain high this year. The issue has simmered since last summer when lawmakers agreed in principle to a $1 billion tax relief plan to combat inflation. The lawmakers later tabled it after an arcane state law triggered nearly $3 billion in one-time tax rebates for residents. Four more police officers have been placed on the state's suspended law enforcement officer list. They include two officers from the Boston Police Department and one each from Salem and Lawrence. By law, the Massachusetts Peace Officer Standards and Training Commission has to suspend the certification of any officer who was arrested, charged, or indicted for a felony. There are currently 19 officers suspended in the state. And Tom Brady took to social media today for an official announcement. I'll get to the point right away. I'm retiring for good. For good this time. You may recall the former Patriots quarterback made a similar announcement last year, in fact, just one year ago. He later changed his mind and played one more season for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But this time, ESPN Patriots reporter Mike Reese says he thinks Brady really means it. The way he made the announcement and the contrast compared to last year was striking to me. The emotion was striking and the finality of his career was also striking to me. Reese says Brady will go down as perhaps the best quarterback of all time. Reese also says Patriots owner Robert Kraft told him he wants Brady to visit Foxborough several times so Pats fans can give him a proper send-off. 30 degrees right now should plunge to 19 overnight tonight. Gray early on tomorrow, then sunshine later. A relatively balmy 38 degrees tomorrow before temperatures fall to 12 tomorrow night and then rise to 18 on Friday and on Saturday. This is WBUR. It's 5.07. WBUR supporters include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at Mott.org.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. In Memphis today, mourners gathered in heartache for the funeral of Tyree Nichols. A good person, a beautiful soul, a son, a father, a brother, a friend, a human being, gone too soon, denied the dignity of his humanity, denied the right to see the sun set another day. That was Reverend Dr. J. Lawrence Turner, senior pastor of the church that hosted Nichols' funeral. He died last month after he was brutally beaten by Memphis police officers. That beating, captured on body cam and surveillance video, infuriated the nation when officials made it public late last week. The five officers involved were fired and charged with murder, and others are under investigation. Today, the calls for justice and accountability were amplified by nearly everyone who spoke, including Vice President Kamala Harris, who was seated next to Nichols' mother. Mothers around the world, when their babies are born, pray to God. When they hold that child, that that body and that life will be safe for the rest of his life. Yet we have a mother and a father who mourn the life of a young man who should be here today. Tyree Nichols' mother, Rovon Wells, remembered her son through tears. I promise you the only thing that's keeping me going is the fact that I really truly believe my son was sitting here on an assignment from God. NPR's Adrian Florido was at the funeral today, and he joins us now from Memphis. Adrian, tell us more about today's services. Well, the funeral was held at the Mississippi Boulevard Christian Church uh, in Midtown Memphis. Hundreds of people came out in spite of freezing rain and icy roads. Uh, and Nichols's closed casket topped with white flowers was front and center. And his parents sat in the front row next to the vice president and other leaders. Um, and also uh, near the families of other black Americans who've been killed by police. Uh, George Floyd's family attended the funeral today, so did Eric Garner's and Breonna Taylor's. Uh, and the eulogy was delivered by the Reverend Al Sharpton. Tell us about that eulogy. What did he say? Well, the Reverend Sharpton spoke of Tyree Nichols as the next in a long line of black victims of police brutality who, in death, have become symbols of African Americans' unending fight for fair treatment. And even as I stand over the casket of this innocent young boy, I believe that God will take him, Tyree, out of that pit and use him as a symbol for justice all over this country. I believe that babies unborn will know about Tyree's Nichols because we won't let his memory die. Sharpton also spoke, Juana, about the fact that all five of the officers charged with murdering Nichols were themselves black. Uh, he said that it was a tra travesty that it happened in a city that had been so important in the civil rights movement and where Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. Uh, he addressed those officers directly. You beat a brother to death. There's nothing more insulting and offensive to those of us that fight to open doors, that you walk through those doors and act like the folks we had to fight for to get you through them doors. 
Reverend Sharpton said that he thought that if Tyree Nichols had been white, that those officers would not have beat him the way they did. Adrian, this funeral has obviously become a symbol for this nation's ongoing reckoning with issues of race and police brutality, but it also is a funeral for a man who was a son, a father, a brother. What else did we learn about Tyree Nichols today? Well, we learned that as a child, his favorite thing to do was watch cartoons with a big bowl of cereal. Uh, and his family spoke a lot about what a peaceful man he was. Here's his sister, Kiana Dixon. Even in his demise, he was still polite. He asked him to please stop. His brother, uh, Jam- James Lazare, told the story of how Tyree got his first name. He said their mother was going to name him Tyree, but uh, she ended up not doing that. But she always kept that name in her back pocket for some reason. I don't know. Then 93 came and our boy came and she was like, there you are, Tyree. (laughs) And I used to always joke with him like, man, you keep messing with me, I'm going to take my name back. And he was like, no, you ain't. That's my name. His mother, Nichols's mother, Rovon Wells, was the last member of his family to speak. And she pleaded with elected leaders to pass police reform because she said if they don't, her son will not be the last victim of, of police brutality. Hmm. And that mother's plea was one of a number of calls to action today. Adrian, tell us what else you heard. Well, the demand that we heard over and over from the family, from the Reverend Sharpton, from the vice president, was for Congress to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which would really beef up tools to hold police accountable for brutality. Ben Crump, the Nichols family lawyer, said that he and others will keep fighting for that and also to push in future cases of police brutality for arrests to happen as quickly as the ones uh, in this case. No more can they ever tell us when we have evidence on video of them brutalizing us that it's going to take six years, that it's going to take a month. No, no, no. 20 days. We're going to start counting. We can count to 20. Crump and the Nichols family also thanked Memphis activists because um, Crump said that without them, the world may never have found out what happened to Tyree Nichols. NPR's Adrian Florido in Memphis. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. On its face, the National Prayer Breakfast is a serene bipartisan event full of spiritual reflection. Over the years, it has also been a source of controversy, full of shadowy fundraising, behind-the-scenes lobbying, even infiltration by a Russian spy. So lawmakers now have taken it out of the hands of the group that had run it for decades, which leaves lots of questions about the new structure of the prayer breakfast and what its goals are. NPR's Domenico Montanaro has some answers. Hey, Domenico. Hey, glad to be with you. So the prayer breakfast is happening tomorrow. This feels like a tradition that's been around forever. What are its origins? Yeah, it's been happening for 70 years, actually. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower in 1953 was the first president to attend one. He was convinced to be there by Billy Graham, the Christian evangelist. From then on, presidents have attended annually. You know, Billy Graham and then his son Franklin, also an evangelist, increased their influence in Washington and were in the ear of presidents for decades. So how did it evolve into a prayer and power broker breakfast? 
Yeah, I mean, the breakfast really gained influence and became a huge networking and recruitment event for the group that ran it for decades, known as the International Foundation, otherwise known as or goes by the Fellowship or the Family. And that name was popularized in the last few years through a book and Netflix docuseries about it. And it's really this kind of secretive group that has met behind the scenes with especially Republican lawmakers. Uh, the breakfast really is ballooned into this multi-day affair attended by thousands, including many from overseas. And there were a lot of questions because there was a lot more going on than just prayers. Some of it unsavory. Tell us about the scrutiny that the family and the breakfast have been under the last couple of years. Yeah, and most notably, it became difficult to keep tabs on who was coming and going, mixing with these lawmakers. You know, that came to a head in 2018 after the Justice Department charged Maria Butina for acting as an agent of the Russian Federation. DOJ actually revealed that Butina had twice attended the prayer breakfasts as a guest. Following some of these revelations and some of the money that the fellowship had had spent in overseas trips, for example, for some Republican lawmakers, many Democrats stopped attending. Democrat Chris Coons of Delaware, who's chairman of the Senate Ethics Committee and has been involved with hosting the breakfast, said he and Republican Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma realized things needed to change. When Senator Lankford and I were co-chairs of the National Prayer Breakfast a number of years ago, there were a lot of questions raised about the finances, about who was invited, about how it was structured. And we frankly had to admit as co-chairs, we didn't know as much as we felt we should have. So they worked to help create a new nonprofit group to run the breakfast. It's headed by former Senator Mark Pryor, a Democrat from Arkansas. And Kuhn says this group is going to be far more accountable to Congress, though it's not exactly clear how yet. Uh, that's given some Democrats like Senator Tim Kaine at least confidence to attend. And Kaine had boycotted the event for years. His office tells me that Kaine now feels it's been significantly reformed. So a new day dawns for the prayer breakfast. How is this year going to be different? First, it's going to be a lot smaller. Uh, just lawmakers and their plus ones are invited, about 300 people as opposed to, say, 3,500 in the past. It's also been moved from a D.C. hotel to the Capitol. Lawmakers will now essentially be walled off at the event from outsiders who are seeking influence. Now, the old foundation is still holding their own big event and beaming in the president's speech to there at this Washington hotel. And there are questions about how much of a break this new group really is from the old one. You know, several of its board members have ties back to the fellowship and its purpose still seems to be rooted in Christian evangelicalism. The group's website, for example, says that the breakfast is in, quote, the spirit of love and reconciliation as Jesus of Nazareth taught 2,000 years ago. Doesn't exactly sound interfaith. No, and I mean, that's one of the big criticisms. It certainly seems uh, to be still rooted in this Christian evangelicalism. At a time, by the way, when a growing number of people, about 30%, are identifying as religiously unaffiliated. Now, Senator Pryor says to give the group a chance to show it can be inclusive. There are also questions, though, about where the new foundation is getting its money. The group has not disclosed its donors, though Pryor said he intends to. We will be disclosing all of that once we get this one breakfast behind us. But right now, we're just not quite ready to do that. But transparency is our aim there. Pryor promises donor disclosures will come sometime in the next few weeks, so I'll have to follow up and let you know, Ari. That's NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Stocks picked up territory on Wall Street. Not a lot for the Dow, just a tiny percent. It closed at 34,093. S&P and NASDAQ had greater gains. The S&P rose more than 1% to close at 41.19. The NASDAQ gained 2% to finish the day at 11,816. Two institutions in Worcester are teaming up to fight a shortage of nurses in the workforce. St. Vincent Hospital and Assumption University have created a program to allow nursing students to complete their clinical training on a medical surgical floor at the hospital. It's the hospital's first designated education unit. Fifteen Assumption student nurses are currently taking part in the program. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974, in Cambridge, Brighton, and at cambridgenaturals.com. Sending Winston flowers from WBUR is an act of love that supports your commitment to learning and growing. Save 10% at WBUR.org. Temperatures should get down to 19 degrees overnight tonight. Then tomorrow, starting off with clouds, the sunshine should break through. Windy and a little bit milder, reaching 38. Then for Friday, sunny and blustery. Temperatures about 18 degrees for a high. Strong winds as well, making it feel well below zero. Friday night should reach minus four. And then Saturday, sunny skies topping out at 18. 30 degrees right now. Better enjoy it while it lasts. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. There are many ways to have an impact in a basketball game, but scoring is the most celebrated skill, which is why Los Angeles Lakers star LeBron James is about to do something special. James is closing in fast on the all-time NBA points record held by Hall of Fame center Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. James has never made the record a priority, but he is scoring at a startling clip that seemingly belies his age. NPR's Tom Goldman reports. Oh, impetuous youth. Last month, 19-year-old Jabari Smith Jr. of the NBA's Houston Rockets approached 38-year-old LeBron James during Houston's game against the Lakers and said this, captured by NBA TV. Hey, you played against my dad. First, Your first NBA game ever. Really? Sacramento. Why you do that? You feel old, don't you? Oh. <laughs> Smith Jr.'s history was right. In October 2003, James made his NBA debut against Smith Sr.'s Sacramento Kings. James scored 25 points. In January 2023, he erupted for 48 against the Rockets. The new season high for LeBron James. Did Jr. willfully poke the NBA's most famous bear? James did acknowledge the sting after the game. Made me feel old as crap, too, man. He even said, he said, that make you feel old, don't I? I said, absolutely, man. 
The thing is, James has been punishing opponents this season without provocation. He's scoring on average just over 30 points a game, three points higher than his career average. Indeed, James is approaching the scoring milestone the way he takes the ball from one end of the court to the other, lowering his shoulder as he surges to the basket, a 6'9", 250-pound freight train. That's what it sounded like when James scored the first points in a recent game in Portland, Oregon. Fans have been cheering him wherever he plays. 34-year-old Manpreet Singh had never seen James in person nor been to an NBA game until he drove five hours from Vancouver, Canada to Portland. And the trip paid off. Wearing a maroon throwback Cleveland Cavaliers LeBron James jersey, Singh marveled as James scored 37 points and led the Lakers to an improbable win after they trailed by 25. Awesome, he looks like a 28-year-old. Takes care of his body, he'll pass that, he'll get over 40,000. Passing that, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's 38,387 points has never been a goal, James says. If anything, he likes to think of breaking the record organically, scoring, as he told ESPN, when his team needs it. I mean, I know how to put the ball in the, in the hole, that's for sure. But also rebounding and involving others, actually his preference. I've always been a pass-first guy. I've always loved the excitement of my seeing the success of my teammates, of playing the game, and that's just the way I was brought up. In fact, James was criticized early in his career for passing to open teammates at key moments. But the criticism is moot as James zeroes in on the scoring record. Instead, there's fascination with how James is playing at such a high level. He was the first one picked in the 2003 NBA draft and the only one from then still playing in the league. His self-care is legendary. Endless workouts, strict diet, cutting-edge recovery techniques. His former coach, when he played for the Miami Heat, Eric Spolstra, says James' diligence with everything, the body maintenance, developing new basketball skills, never being late for a meeting or a flight, it's all a bit obsessive, which Spolstra sensed the first time he saw James in the Heat locker room. He was folding up his clothes and putting it like, you know, perfectly in a pile, and then he didn't want anybody else's stuff spilling over into his workspace. Um, how you do anything is how you do everything. And he's a perfect example of that. Everything has gotten the four-time NBA champion and four-time league MVP to the cusp of this record, and four years ahead of Abdul-Jabbar, who sank his last shot at 42. James has had some advantages in piling up the points. He entered the NBA out of high school. Abdul-Jabbar couldn't and went four years to UCLA. And James has taken full advantage of the three-point shot, which started in the NBA in 1979, halfway through Abdul-Jabbar's career. James has made more than 2,000 three-pointers. Abdul-Jabbar made, well, this one. Cooper misses from 18. Kareem hustles, gets it. Shoot a three-pointer, oh, Kareem. To. It's three, and it goes! There's the first one of his life. And it was the only three-pointer he made in his career. Abdul-Jabbar doesn't appear to begrudge James' advantages, noting on ESPN the natural progression of records. It's always about passing it on to the next guy in line. Last year at a Lakers game, a fan sitting courtside asked James if he'll cry when he breaks the record. James shook his head and said he'll cry if LA wins another championship. The fan said, but the record has stood for nearly 40 years. James shrugged and said he didn't try to do it. Turns out 
you can do some big things you don't set your mind to. Tom Goldman, NPR News, Portland. If you ever get tired of eating leftovers, you should take pity on the Neanderthals. A new study suggests our prehistoric cousins would slaughter giant, straight-tusked elephants for dinner, giving new meaning to the phrase, supersize it. These elephants were much, much larger. They are three times larger than African elephants today. So these were really calorie bombs. Lutz Kendler is a zooarchaeologist in Germany. In a study out in the journal Science Advances, his team writes that the meat and fat from a kill like that could sustain 25 people for three months or hundreds of people for a week. His co-author, Will Rubrooks, says this has big implications for how Neanderthals might have lived. It gives us an insight in either that they were capable of storing the huge amounts of food that came from butchering these animals for a long time, and or that they were uh, operating in, at least temporarily, in much larger groups than commonly in visits for, for Neanderthals and other early hunter-gatherers. The researchers studied elephant bones recovered from a German mine decades ago. They found regular patterns of cut marks on the bones, suggesting Neanderthals methodically broke down their kills, just like your local butcher might break down a chicken the same way each time. Of course, you can only butcher animals in, there's not a lot of way in which you can butcher them, but they seem to have been doing it over a very long time period. They also found the remains were disproportionately adult males, a sign that Neanderthals were hunting rather than scavenging the animals. It's just really unusual. There, there aren't a lot of natural explanations for why that would happen, which is why these researchers uh, concluded that it, it must have been from, from hunting and targeting bull males in particular, which um, are often living like solitary. They're not part of a herd, so it's a little bit easier to, to kill them. Zooarchaeologist Britt Starkovich was not involved in the work. She says it reframes our understanding of Neanderthals as simply small bands of roaming hunter-gatherers. Instead, an elephant kill would have allowed them to gather larger groups for, long for longer periods of time. So, okay, cool. Neanderthals hunted elephants. But beyond that, the social and cultural implications of this, I think, are really, really profound. The thought of a hundred Neanderthals coming together to exchange ideas and culture and genes and stories. It's incredibly compelling. And she says the study provides yet more evidence that Neanderthals were more clever than they often get credit for. This is NPR News. This is WBUR. Tonight we get a visitor from the distant cloud, Oort. It's the comet ZTF, and the last time it popped by was 50,000 years ago. Tonight it'll be the closest it'll come to us, a mere 26 million miles away. Should look like a greenish light with a sweeping dusty tail somewhere between the North Star and the Big Dipper. Should be clear enough tonight to see it. Temperatures down in the teens. And for tomorrow, sunny skies eventually up around 38 degrees. Then frigid air moves in after that. Comedian John Mulvaney will film a comedy special at Symphony Hall in Boston later this month. Three shows on the venue, February 25th, 26th, and 27th. Tickets go on sale tomorrow. The show tells the story of Mulvaney's intervention before he checked into a rehab facility in 2020. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. I think that right now, the things that have been happening are, broadly speaking, the things that we want to see. And 
There are a lot of threats on the horizon, lots of things that could go wrong, but they haven't gone wrong yet. And maybe we should take that moment for the moment of optimism that it is. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Biden administration is increasing the pressure on congressional Republicans amid the showdown over raising the nation's debt ceiling. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the borrowing limit should be lifted without any preconditions. Are they going to live up to their constitutional obligation? Are they going to lift the debt ceiling, as many of them did, including Speaker McCarthy, three times under the last president? President Biden held talks with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy today to discuss a way forward. McCarthy emerged from the White House meeting, saying the two had different perspectives on the matter, but said he would like to come to an agreement well before the deadline. Former U.N. Ambassador and South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is expected to launch her 2024 presidential campaign, making her the first major Republican to challenge former President Donald Trump. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben reports a source familiar with the Republicans' plan say the announcement's coming in two weeks. Haley has been teasing a run in recent weeks. Speaking to Fox News' Brett Baer in January, she said the nation requires new leadership on a range of issues, like foreign policy, the economy, and the role of government. All of these things warrant the fact that, yes, we need to go in a new direction. And can I be that leader? Yes, I think I can be that leader. Haley served as U.N. ambassador under Trump. She initially criticized him sharply for his role in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, but backtracked months later, saying the GOP needs Trump. And at one point, she said she wouldn't run for president if he ran. Haley plans on announcing her 2024 run on February 15th in Charleston, South Carolina. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News. At the close on Wall Street today, the Dow was up six points, the Nasdaq up 231. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Garo Hagopian in Boston. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is declaring a cold emergency in the city Friday through Sunday. On Friday and Saturday, it's expected to feel like 20 degrees below zero with the wind chill. Residents are advised to stay indoors if possible. Community centers run by Boston Centers for Youth and Families will be open as warming centers on Friday and Saturday. Homelessness service providers will operate with extended hours. Parents in Woburn say they're struggling with child care this week. The city's schools have been closed due to a teacher's strike now wrapping up its third day. But many parents also say the inconvenience is part of a worthy cause, as WBUR's Max Larkin reports. Woburn teachers have been working under an expired contract for 18 months and have long been raising concerns about low pay and lack of planning time with families. So many Woburn parents saw this strike coming. Mary Paris says her two kids are learning this week on the picket line. We were up every day, 8.30 in the morning, bringing them coffee and breakfast. They're very much engaged in trying to support their teachers. And so To be honest with you, I think this is probably the best civics lesson that they'll ever receive. Parents do say they hope for a resolution soon and are calling on Woburn Mayor Scott Galvin to redouble his efforts to wrap up negotiations. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin in Woburn. 
Nantucket Public Schools will reopen tomorrow. They were closed today because of a ransomware attack on the school district's computer system. The superintendent of schools says the school department's tech team worked with outside cybersecurity experts to restore telephone and Internet service today. When classes resume tomorrow, students will only be allowed to use school-issued Chromebooks. Outside devices will not be permitted. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. In sports, it's the Bruins and Maple Leafs in Toronto, and the Celtics host the Nets. Both games getting underway at 7.30 tonight. Checking the forecast, clear tonight, low 19, overcast tomorrow, gradually becoming sunny with a high of 38. Right now in Boston, 29 with clear skies. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. That battle with inflation is not yet over, but we may be getting closer to a ceasefire. The Federal Reserve raised interest rates again today as it tries to clamp down on high prices. But this was the Fed's smallest rate hike in almost a year. The central bank is adopting a more cautious approach as it tries to weigh the effect that higher borrowing costs are having on the economy. NPR's Scott Horsley is here in the studio. Hey, Scott. Hi, Ari. So today's move was a major downshift for the Fed. What's going on? The central bank spent most of last year playing catch-up with inflation, which hit a 40-year high last summer. The Fed had to raise interest rates at the fastest pace in decades. Now, those rate hikes are starting to have the desired effect. You know, people are spending a little bit less. Inflation has started to cool off. So the Fed thinks it's time for some fine-tuning. Today's rate hike was only a quarter of a percentage point, much smaller than most of last year's increases. Even though we're seeing lower inflation, though, or disinflation, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell says we're not out of the woods yet. We're going to be cautious about declaring victory and, you know, sending signals that uh, that we think that the, the game is won because, it, you know, it's we've got a long way to go. It's just it's the early stages of disinflation. And the, it's most welcome to be able to say that. But we just see that it has to spread through the economy and that it's going to take some time. Powell thinks the central bank will push interest rates a little bit higher, maybe two more quarter-point rate hikes. And he says rates are likely to stay up for the rest of this year, although that could change if circumstances dictate. What does that mean for ordinary Americans and for the economy more broadly? Well, higher rates are certainly weighing on the housing market. Uh, They also make it more expensive to get a car loan or carry a balance on your credit card. People are getting a little more cautious about their spending. What's encouraging is so far we haven't seen much fallout in the job market. Uh, Despite some of those high-profile layoffs in the tech sector, unemployment's still really low, just 3.5%. Now, some critics do worry that if the Fed goes too far with these interest rate hikes, we could see a jump in unemployment. But Powell insists it's better to push rates too high than to stop short and then see inflation come roaring back. It's very difficult to manage the risk of doing too little and finding out in six or 12 months that we actually were close but didn't get the job done. 
Powell and other officials have been saying that for months. But, you know, financial markets are not convinced. In fact, a lot of investors think the central bank's going to end up cutting interest rates before the end of this year. After some hesitation today, the stock market rallied. Uh, the S&P 500 closed up 1%. The Nasdaq jumped 2%. Powell usually tries to steer clear of political fights, but he was asked today about the fight over the debt ceiling. What did he say about that? Yeah, the federal government's bumping up against its debt limit, and unless Congress authorizes an increase sometime this summer, the government won't be able to pay all of its bills. House Republicans hope to use that as a bargaining chip to extract spending cuts. Powell says that's a risky proposition, and he warned if the government flirts with a default, no one should expect the central bank to come to the rescue. There's only one way forward here, and that is for Congress to raise the debt ceiling so that the United States government can pay all of its obligations when due. And any deviations from that path would be highly risky, and that no one should assume that the Fed can protect the economy from the consequences of failing to act in a timely manner. This is kind of a recurring nightmare for Powell, who had to make a similar argument to House Republicans back in 2011, the last time there was a big showdown over the debt ceiling. Back then, Powell was a scholar at the Bipartisan Policy Center, and then President Obama was so impressed by his performance, he put Powell on the Federal Reserve Board. NPR's Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome. A case before a federal judge in Texas could dramatically affect abortion access in this country, at least as much as the Dobbs decision, according to some experts. We are talking about a lawsuit filed by anti-abortion rights groups. It targets access to abortion pills, which a number which a growing number of patients are using to end pregnancies, and a decision in this case is expected soon. NPR Sarah McCammon has been following it all and joins us now. Hey there. I want to. Sarah, tell us more about just what's at stake here. Well, a lot is at stake because medication abortion, as opposed to a surgical procedure, it's now the most common way that people terminate pregnancies, especially in the first trimester when the vast majority of abortions occur. Abortion pills are increasingly relied on by people who live in places where access to clinics is limited by state laws or geography. And the gold standard for medication abortion in this country is a two-drug protocol that begins with a drug called mifepristone. It was approved more than 20 years ago by the FDA. But now a group led by the anti-abortion rights group Alliance Defending Freedom has filed a lawsuit in federal court in Texas asking a judge to reverse that approval. Okay, so what's the the argument there? Well, they're raising questions about the approval process back in 2000 and some of the rule changes that have been made over the years. For example, they note that under President Biden, the FDA now allows mifepristone to be mailed or dispensed by retail pharmacies. It used to be subject to more restrictions. Here's Denise Harley, senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. And since then, they've loosened the requirements again and again and again. So now mifepristone is being given to women who um, have never even seen a physician in person. And under the recent rule changes, Juana, it is now possible for patients to receive a prescription through telehealth in states where that's legal. And major medical groups, by the way, have been advocating for those changes for years. So, Sarah, what is likely to happen with this case? Well, normally, as the FDA notes in its defense of its approval process in this case, it would be unusual to pull a drug from the market after more than two decades of widespread use. Major medical groups say it's safe and effective for most patients if used properly. But that decision is now up to a federal judge named Matthew Kaczmarek. He's a Trump appointee with longstanding affiliations with the religious right, including work as an attorney with a conservative Christian legal group based in Texas. I talked to Elizabeth Sepper, a University of Texas law professor, and she told me it's no accident that this complaint was filed in Amarillo. 
the way the district courts in Texas dole out cases makes it so that there are a few places where you pretty much know exactly the judge you're going to get. So they know they have a very sympathetic ear here. And any appeals in this case would go to the Fifth Circuit, which is known as a conservative circuit, and then, of course, to the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. So what are the implications of this decision? So if a Judge Kaczmarek sides with the plaintiffs, the anti-abortion groups, Mifepros Pristone would have to be pulled from the market, at least temporarily. Now, the FDA could choose to start the approval process over again, but that can take years. Jenny Ma is senior counsel with the Center for Reproductive Rights, and she stresses that because this is a federal case, the impact could be felt nationwide, so not just in red states with abortion bans. After Dobbs, it almost seemed like there were two Americas where abortion access was allowed in some states and not in others. This would amount to a nationwide ban on medication abortions, and patients who seek this care would not be able to get this care from any pharmacy or any prescriber or any provider. The next deadline in this case, the next key date is February 10th, when both sides have to complete all of their briefs, and the judge could rule sometime after that. Sarah, as you mentioned earlier, the abortion pill has been on the market for more than two decades. So why are these groups choosing to challenge it now? Well, a few reasons. They mentioned the Biden administration changes to some of the rules in recent years. But when you talk about the battle over abortion access, medication abortion is really a huge focus. That's partly because it's the most common choice for people terminating pregnancies in the U.S. This case has the potential to take that option away and uh, nationwide. NPR's Sarah McCammon, thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Global oil markets are bracing for more upheaval in the next couple weeks. That's when the European Union will ban all Russian oil products in retaliation for the war in Ukraine. The ban includes diesel fuel used widely throughout Europe. NPR's Jackie Northam reports. This will be the second European Union ban targeting Russian energy in the past two months. In December, an all-out ban on Russian crude oil went into effect. This one, due to be implemented this weekend, will apply to anything produced from Russian crude, says Richard Bronze, head of geopolitics at Energy Aspects, a consultancy. The gasoline that goes into a car, the jet fuel that goes into a plane, or diesel that goes into trucks, into operating machinery. So it's, it's really the, the fuel that we actually consume and keeps the economy going. Braun says Europe imports about 750,000 barrels a day of Russian diesel, more than half its total imports. So the ban will have an impact. Europe has been gobbling up diesel ahead of the ban and looking for new suppliers, says Matteo Elardo with Rain, a global risk intelligence company. Kuwait, for instance, in the Middle East will increase fivefold its exports of diesel to Europe and twofold, the, the jet fuel exports to Europe. And uh, these diesel flows will also increase a lot from Saudi Arabia, but also from Asia, from India a lot, and from the U.S. And just as it did with the ban on crude, Russia will have to find new places to sell its refined oil products, says Hedy Grati, head of refining research at S&P Global Commodity Insights, an energy research and data company. Those could be in East Africa, they could be in Asia, they could be in Latin America. And so what you're looking at is one great big reshuffle to get 
desirable barrels into Europe and then barrels deemed undesirable from Russia to those other markets. There is a twist. The ban on Russian oil products could boost its sales of crude to China and India. Both can import Russian crude, refine it, and send it back to Europe. It's all perfectly legal, says Bronze. It is being viewed by some critics as a loophole or a weakness, but I think that is a deliberate part of the policy design, and it reflects the usual way that customs treats crude oil versus refined products. Once it's been through a refinery, uh, for customs rules, the oil is viewed as transformed, and then its country of origin becomes wherever that refinery was located. Along with the ban, the G7 will institute a price cap on Russian refined oil products anywhere in the world. That's similar to what happened when crude was banned in December. That means no ships will be insured if they're selling the oil products above a certain price, which hasn't been set yet. Whatever price is decided, Elardo says there will undoubtedly be turmoil in the global oil markets initially. We'll have a price spike, definitely in February, right after the ban comes in place. Uh, this will be simply a market reaction. Markets don't like uncertainty, so they usually react with price spikes. Not good news for consumers or businesses in Europe, which is already struggling with a weakened economy. And oil is a global market, which means there will be an impact in the U.S. as well. The big question is whether this ban, like the other one, will have any impact on Russian President Vladimir Putin in ending the war in Ukraine. Jackie Northam, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Garo Hagopian. Up next on All Things Considered, an ocean research team is recently back from a 35-day expedition to explore the deep seas surrounding a new marine park in the Indian Ocean. They gathered thousands of specimens. You'll hear about them next on All Things Considered. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's current season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at BSO.org. In sports, it's the Bruins and Maple Leafs in Toronto, and the Celtics host the Nets. Both games getting underway at 7.30 tonight. Checking the forecast to clear overnight to low 19 degrees, overcast tomorrow. Uh, before gradually becoming sunny, it'll be windy as well with a high of 38. Clear, frigid tomorrow night, low of 12 degrees. Sunny, cold on Friday, highs in the mid-teens. Right now in Boston, we've got clear skies and 29 degrees. This is WBUR. Growing up as an immigrant, I often felt like there were these two competing ideas of romantic love, or what it should be. There's the classic falling in love at first sight that we celebrate in American pop culture. And then there's this, quote, more practical version that says, love will grow with time as long as your values align. The two ideas felt at odds to a younger me, but the slightly wiser me, the journalist me, knows there's more than one way to understand big, complex ideas. I'm Yasmin Amr, and I'm a reporter at WBUR. We want to keep bringing you new perspectives and tell stories to deepen our understanding of one another. You will help us do that when you send your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR. Visit WBUR.org to get started.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Dr. E. Kai T. loves to talk about fish. His social media handle is Kai the Fish Guy, and he recently joined a research expedition to the Indian Ocean that turned up all manner of unusual creatures. There's the cute, dumpling-like deep-sea batfish, the rather scary-looking high-fin lizardfish, and then there's the bony-eared assfish. You know, one of my colleagues actually lectured us on the etymology behind assfish. I for the life of me, cannot remember because I was too busy laughing. (laughs) Dr. T, who is a biodiversity research fellow at the Australian Museum in Sydney, says that the Indian Ocean expedition found thousands of specimens. About a third of them could be new to science, and each is a marvel of deep sea evolution. It's funny to poke fun at these creatures and and it's, you know, it's good to have a, a laugh, but these are things that have been around for millions of years. They've been around, you know, way longer than we have. They are masters of their realm. You can't, you know, live in 3,000 meters of water and not be a master at what you do. It's just an inhospitable environment. And the fact that these creatures are living down there to the best of their ability, thriving um, and making the most out of these habitats, that's just to me a remarkable um, feat, you know. So we can laugh at the ass fish all we want, but it's just they deserve the respect that that we give for all animals equally. Well, Dr. T, a.k.a. Kai the Fish Guy, recently talked with Aaron Scott on Shortwave, NPR's daily science podcast where he gives us a glimpse of life three miles below the ocean's surface. Give us a little sense of what the environment is like down there. I mean, this this deep sea ocean as compared to the, the coral reef ecosystems that, that you tend to study, what is it like for the creatures that live there and what are some of the things that they've adapted or evolved in order to live in that space? One of the main differences, obviously, is uh, temperature. Water is really, really cold down there. Uh, and the other differences would be light and pressure. So there's absolutely no light down there. Um, and the water pressure is a lot higher than what you would have up in the shallower realms. But the animals that live down there, they're really, really well adapted to living in these environments. Um, because of the cold temperature and because of the lack of food there, a lot of animals have really, really low metabolic rates. So they don't, they're not very active. They don't really swim much. They kind of just spend their lives either floating through the water, water column or just sitting at the bottom of the seafloor. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them have really big teeth that allows them to well, not only you know, <laughs> capture prey items, but make sure that whatever they're catching is not escaping. Um, and to deal with the water pressure, a lot of them have really low muscle density as well. They're really gelatinous. They're really blobby. Um, so the, the pressure keeps them in shape. But when you take them up to the surface, you just see that they just kind of melt onto the table you know, in, a, in a way. <laughs> they're just really gelatinous. The, water, the flesh is really watery. Gelatinous creatures with big teeth. Yeah, and the lights too. So... Uh, a lot of animals down there are bioluminescent, um, so they produce their own light. Um, and bioluminescence in animals can arise in two different ways, either intrinsically, so they're actually producing light uh, based on chemicals that they're producing innately, or they're doing it symbiotically with bacteria that light-producing bacteria that they house in special organs called photophores. Um, so it's really interesting, actually. You have you know all these creatures down there that can produce light, but they're producing different colored lights, and they're producing lights in different ways. They're producing lights in different areas, but they're all kind of doing it to achieve the same thing, uh, either for camouflage or for um, 
communicating or for attracting prey. It sounds like a fish disco tech. It is, um, <laughs> and it's really. It's. I mean, look. I mean, Aaron, like you, you, you read about these things in in books, right? Like I've known about lantern fishes my entire lives. I've known about you know angler fishes and all these light producing things, but seeing them in person and holding them in your hand and looking at the photophores. I mean, these are just remarkable creatures. Like, the photophores are so beautiful. Um, they're just you know such luminescent organs and they produce purple and blue and red lights and it's just ah, it's just you know stunning and uh yeah you know truly a, an experience of a lifetime in some ways like you said it's like christmas pulling yeah. this net up can you tell us a little bit about some of the favorite critters amongst all the things you guys pulled up what 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 were some of the highlights for you we found a bunch of new potentially new species uh, we got a, a few, you know, really exciting finds. Things like the viper fish and, and pelican eels and, and tripod fishes. Things that, you know, you read about your entire lives, but you never thought you'd actually see one. Um, and um, these were just, you know, childhood favorites of mine that I've known about, you know, basically since I was 10, but have never thought in my wildest dreams that I would see and hold one in person. The deep sea bat fish really seem to make some waves on social right? media. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where do I even begin? They look like ravioli or pierogies or dumplings. To me, it looked it looked like a, a deflated sweet dumpling. <laughs> um, but these are sometimes called pancake fishes and they are very flat. And if you look underneath the body, mm -hmm. their fins are modified into tiny little um, almost legs and they use it to basically crawl along the seafloor. So these are things with, you know, very, very poor dispersal mechanisms. They move at a pace that is just glacial, but they have enormous distributions. I mean, some of these species are found across the equator. Like how are they dispersing and how are they hmm. getting, you know, across the oceans? Um, and are they really one species? So these are the kind of questions that we're really interested in answering, right? We want to know more about not only what these fishes are, but how are they getting here and why are they living here and whether or not this population that's found in the Cocos Island, you know, are they the same as the ones that are found in Japan, for example, or Asia? Mm. These are all questions that, we, you know, we're really interested in answering. So dozens of scientists spent 35 days on this boat. You all pulled up, I'm going to guess, like thousands of actual specimens. It's so much work. And, so much work. And I mean, which I feel like we need to almost end with like, what is the big goal? I mean, why why to you is it important that we are putting all this work and all these resources into cataloging this life? Well, you know, I think it's really, really important to, you know, first of all, realize that, you know, we live in a world with very finite resources and things that are living down in these areas are not, they're not immune and they're not impervious to the threats that are faced from the shallow water, you know, counterparts in, in, in shallower coral reefs, right? And in order to protect these things, we need to know what they are first. Mm -hmm. So the first step in any biodiversity sampling is to understand what's living down there, you know, and then to put names on things that don't have names. It's helping us to understand what's living down there at this point in time. So it's not just the research that's conducted today, but also the research that's conducted down in the future you know, for, mm -hmm. for future generations to come and, and other scientists around the world to access and, um, and, and better understand our world collectively through the stuff that we're collecting mm -hmm. to better understand what's living in our world so that we can protect it better. Dr. E. Kai T, or Kai the Fish Guy, talking with co-host Aaron Scott on NPR's daily science podcast, Shortwave. Thank you.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Garo Hagopian. Up next on All Things Considered, there's a lot going on in politics, another search for classified documents, an opening meeting on the debt ceiling, and a new player in the race for the Republican presidential nomination. More coming up. In the forecast tonight, clear with a low of 19 degrees, overcast tomorrow before gradually becoming sunny, high 38. Right now, 29 in Boston, clear skies at 6 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Elizabeth Bain of Commonwealth Standard Realty, offering creative, custom solutions for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston. More at elizabethbainhomes.com. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy convene in a high-stakes meeting in the Oval Office. It's their first one-on-one sit-down since McCarthy assumed the post. The issues before them will have the latest on the search for classified documents wherever they may be. It's Wednesday, February 1st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Garo Hagopian. One year to the day after he said he was stepping away from the NFL, the first time, former Patriots quarterback Tom Brady announced he's retiring again. I won't be long-winded. I think you only get one super emotional retirement essay, and I used mine up last year. This time he says it's for real. Plus, what it's like to be nominated for a Grammy for the first time. You'll hear from musical artist Omar Apollo. And ahead at 6.30 on Marketplace, the Fed raises rates again and offers an update on the inflation fight. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy met today at the White House, where they discussed what has become a major sticking point between Republicans and Democrats, namely how to deal with raising the nation's borrowing limit to avert a potential crisis. Emerging from the session, McCarthy said the two sides heard one another, though he indicated more work needs to be done. We had an hour conversation about this that I thought was a very good discussion, and we, we walked out saying we would continue the discussion. And I think there is an opportunity here to come to an agreement on both sides. And I think that's the best for the, I think that's what the American people want. Biden and McCarthy, to some extent, have been locked in a standoff over raising the nation's $31.4 trillion debt ceiling, with Republicans seeking to use it as a lever to extract spending cuts. The White House has said it's only willing to discuss cuts 
cuts once the debt ceiling has been raised. This is the third straight day of a winter storm that has brought freezing rain and sleet to much of north and central Texas. KERA's Tolawani Osibamawo reports the icy weather is expected to continue through tomorrow morning. Major cities such as Dallas and Fort Worth and their surrounding areas will remain under an ice storm warning as more freezing rain is projected to hit North Texas. The state's power grid has withstood the cold, but some communities lost power anyway. Hunter Reeves is with the National Weather Service in Fort Worth. With freezing rain, it's, it's falling as liquid precipitation, but it freezes on contact with whatever it touches first. So roofs, power lines, tree branches, road surfaces, sidewalks, your car. Meanwhile, the storm has grounded thousands of flights and canceled school for hundreds of thousands of families. I'm Toluani Osibemowo in Dallas. Four men detained in Haiti are now in U.S. custody to face charges in the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise. NPR's Ader Peralta reports a total of seven people are charged in the plot. The U.S. Justice Department says four men, three Haitian Americans and a Colombian, have now been transferred to Miami, where they're facing charges of conspiracy to commit murder or kidnapping. According to the complaint, the men met in the spring of 2021 in Florida to plan the overthrow of Haiti's government. Federal prosecutors say they came up with a list of materials, including machine guns, grenades, and tear gas, that they needed to execute the plan. The U.S. government says some bulletproof vests shipped by the men from Florida were used in the operation to kill President Moise. The U.S. has now charged seven people in his assassination. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City. A group of U.S. senators now say they may seek to add Iran and Russia to a house pass measure that would stop any oil from the nation's strategic petroleum reserve from being sold to China as well. On Wall Street, stocks gained ground after the Fed's announcement it was raising rates today. The Dow up six points. The Nasdaq rose 231. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Garo Hagopian in Boston. It's been nearly three years since the coronavirus pandemic forced lawmakers on Beacon Hill to adopt rules allowing members to debate and vote remotely. And today the House voted to rescind those rules. Now lawmakers will be required to come into the chamber to conduct most business. WBUR's Steve Brown with more. House Speaker Ron Mariano says being in the chamber is important for the exchange of ideas and for discussion of the issues. In advocating for in-person sessions, Mariano says he wants newly elected members to experience that. As ideas germinate and you start to hear different opinions and different sides of issues, you, you can change your mind and opinions evolve. So. Uh, I think it's part of the legislative process. It always has been and always should be. Mariano says the House will continue to allow hybrid committee hearings and that they must be live-streamed and archived. He also says citizens would be given the opportunity to testify remotely during those hearings. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. The Massachusetts House declares Democrat Kristen Kastner the winner of a contested seat for state rep on the North Shore. Incumbent Republican Lenny Mira was originally listed as the winner of the election last November. But after a recount, Kastner was declared the winner by a single vote. Mira challenged the outcome in court. A judge ruled the final decision must come from the House. Lobster and crab fishermen are now banned from working in a large part of the Massachusetts Bay for the next three months. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is putting the ban in place to protect endangered right whales from getting tangled in fishing gear or being hit by ships. Beth Cassoni, the executive director of the Massachusetts Lobstermen's Association, says the ban unusual, uh, usually only lasts for the month of April when the whales are most active. 
they have anywhere from 300 to 600 lobster pots in this area. And the price of lobster right now is higher than it has been. So to think that they're going to be now shut out for an additional two months is unacceptable when the risk is not there. She says the group is taking legal action to try to stop the closure. Weeks before online sports wagering becomes legal in Massachusetts, a Boston-based online betting and fantasy sports company is laying off workers as part of a reorganization. DraftKings says it's cutting 140 jobs, 15 of them here in Massachusetts. DraftKings employs more than 1,300 people in the state. The Boston Symphony Orchestra is unveiling the lineup for its 85th Tanglewood season. NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me will kick off the summer series in the Berkshires with a live show on June 22nd. Other scheduled acts include James Taylor and Robert Plant with Alison Krauss. The Boston Pops will also perform a series of movie-themed concert nights. Tickets go on sale next month. Checking the forecast now, clear tonight, low 19 degrees, overcast tomorrow before gradually becoming sunny, windy as well with a high of 38. Right now in Boston, clear skies and 29 degrees. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The FBI spent about three and a half hours today at President Biden's vacation house in Delaware looking for classified documents that may have been improperly retained. Biden did not speak about that today. He did meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on the U.S. debt ceiling. And we also have some news about who may challenge Donald Trump to be the Republican Party's nominee for president next year. All in all, a busy day in and around Washington. So a couple of our correspondents are here to break it down for us, starting with NPR Scott Detrow at the White House. Scott, tell me about what the FBI found in that search of the president's second home in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. Well, well, let's start with what they did not find. And Biden's lawyer says agents did not find any more documents with classified markings. But Bob Bauer says the agents did take some materials and handwritten notes that appear to be from Biden's time as vice president. Uh, And that's interesting because today is the second time the FBI has taken handwritten notes. They did that about two weeks ago when they searched his Wilmington residence. Uh, But neither the White House nor Biden's personal lawyer have provided details about what exactly these handwritten notes are. Uh, I asked Ian Sams, the White House spokesman handling this topic about this today. They believe that, uh, you know, some of the materials that uh, were seen and were taken, they appear to relate to his time as vice president. I think that, you know, they want to make sure that the Justice Department has access to the information that they need to sift through materials as part of this ongoing investigation. And so, uh, you know, I'm not going to characterize too much of the underlying contents. Sam's also would not say how many physical documents were taken today. So, so, so still a lot of questions about the exact scope of this. This is the third place now where the FBI has taken material from Biden. Is this becoming a drag on, on the presidency? I mean, definitely. Re- remember, they spent 13 hours searching the president's home a week and a half ago. Uh, Biden staffers found those initial documents at the at Biden's Penn Biden Center offices back in November. There were those additional documents at his home in Wilmington that Biden lawyers found. 
And throughout all of this, it's become a big part of the story. The White House has consistently withheld key details. Another one right now is that the White House still has not confirmed or denied, despite a lot of attempts from like from people like me, uh, a CBS report from earlier this week that the FBI also searched the Penn Biden Center last year. The White House is becoming a bit more responsive on this. It's worth noting today was the first time that Ian Sams held an in-person press conference on all of this. And President Biden, for his part, had a high-profile meeting with the Republican Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, to talk about the debt ceiling. What came out of that? Yeah, the meeting took place behind closed doors, so we don't know too much. We do know this, that Republicans want to use this this moment of lifting the debt ceiling to try and force spending cuts, like what happened during the Obama administration. The White House has been trying to call their bluff and saying, you know, Republicans have at times talked about cutting very popular programs like Medicare, Social Security. Is that what they want to do? Uh, But McCarthy uh, said to our colleague Deirdre Walsh that there are plenty of room for other cuts in other government programs. Think about uh, think about the budget. That's all discretionary. There's trillions of dollars there. So there's a lot of places. There's likely a lot of time, especially in Washington, thinking of how much time there is before a deal is needed to be hit uh, before the true deadline hits. But as of right now, neither side is budging. All right. So that's the view at the White House. Let's pull the camera back a bit and bring in NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben. Danielle, any idea how this debt ceiling fight is likely to play with voters? Somewhat. I mean, one place we can look is 2011, when uh, there was a major debt ceiling fight that led to the U.S.'s credit rating being downgraded. Now, how that played out was that afterwards, people really blamed Congress more than President Obama, and they blamed the GOP more than Democrats. So that is one potential data point we can look to as to how this might play out. However, if you're if you were watching the campaign trail in 2022 or talking to voters, you know that candidates don't talk a lot about America's fiscal situation, reducing debt lately, and voters don't talk about it either. This Mm. isn't a topic that gets people fired up the way that inflation does, or the way that a lot of social issues do. The one thing to think about is what will get them fired up, which is if we hit the debt ceiling or get close enough that it causes major economic problems, which this could. I mean, at that point, how polls might look is going to be far down on the list of priorities compared to things like recession, job loss, a plunging stock market, people's retirement accounts suddenly shrinking. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, there would be political repercussions to that, But issue one at that point would be riding the ship after a really unprecedented blow. As you are looking ahead to possible future scenarios, let's talk about what the 2024 Republican presidential race might look like. Because now former President Donald Trump has a challenger. Uh, Former South Carolina governor and U.N. ambassador Nikki Haley says she is officially going to announce her run for president in mid-February. How is she likely to fit into the field? Well, on the one hand, when you talk to voters, when I have talked to Republican voters about potential 2024 candidates, she's relatively well liked. The voters that know her think she's smart, think that she is capable, think that she did a good job being President Trump's U.N. ambassador. But then again, that's if voters know her. She is most certainly not as well known, of course, as President Trump and not as well known as someone like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. She's just not as splashy as those candidates are. One other thing to think about is that she has occupied an interesting middle ground for quite a while. Trump affiliated, but not Trumpy in her political style. And the question is how long that can stick before she's attacked for flip-flopping on things. For example, after the January 6th attack on the Capitol, she harshly rebuked President Trump 
And then a little bit later, she backpedaled and she said, well, the Republican Party needs Trump. And she started praising him again. Uh, Similarly, at one point, she said she wouldn't run if Trump ran for president. But now it appears that, well, yes, she will. Hmm. So what we can say is that I'm I'm certain that we in the media will be asking her about some of her uh, position shifts and that her fellow candidates will push her on that as well. Trump, of course, reshaped the party in his four years as president. He's now been running for a few months. Is he as dominant this time as he was the last two times? I mean, he's, of course, like I said, the best known candidate. He has that solid base of loyalists, which he didn't have when he jumped in in 2015, right? But there are good reasons to question his dominance. For example, his latest fundraising report shows that he took in just just shy of $10 million since his November announcement. That's a lot of money, but it's not. It's slower than other well-known candidates have done in the past. And one other thing is that early polling shows that he could have a strong challenge from someone like Ron DeSantis. Now, early polling isn't the most reliable, but what it shows is that Trump is vulnerable. What's interesting is once people like Nikki Haley and other people jump in, do they take votes from Trump or take support from each other or both? And I want to end by returning to Scott Detrow at the White House, where President Biden still has not announced whether or not he's running for re-election. Briefly, what's the outlook there? Well, and he says he hasn't made a final decision either. Normally, for a first-term president, this would be a no-brainer. But but remember, Biden is the oldest president ever. And when he first ran, he talked a lot about being a bridge to the next generation, things like that. I will note he's spending a lot of time certainly acting like he's running again, drawing attention to accomplishments so far. I was covering a fundraiser Biden did yesterday at a swanky Upper East Side apartment. And it stood out to me so many times that he talked about what Democrats need to run on uh, next election and even seemed to talk about goals for a second term. All right. And Pierre Scott Detrow and Danielle Kurtzleben, thank you both. Sure thing. Thank you. One year after retiring from professional football, Tom Brady announced today he is retiring from professional football. Good morning, guys. I'll get to the point right away. I'm retiring for good. The all-time great quarterback, who is now 45 years old, posted a short video on social media. I won't be long-winded. You only get one super emotional retirement essay, and I used mine up last year. In that emotional essay, Brady said, Now it is time to focus my time and energy on other things that require my attention. But 40 days later, he unretired and came back to play his 23rd season in the NFL. Let's go! This season, his Tampa Bay Buccaneers won their division and made the playoffs, but lost in the first round. As Brady walked off the field that day, ESPN commentator Troy Aikman took a moment to reflect. If, in fact, this is it for Tom Brady, all I can say on behalf of all football fans is thank you and appreciate the memories. What a career. Brady expressed his gratitude as he concluded the post-game press conference. Just very grateful for the respect, and I and, uh, hope I gave the same thing back to you guys. So thank you very much. Appreciate it. In a statement today, Bucks general manager Jason Light said, we won't ever forget the wins or the accolades, and his influence will be felt for years to come. Brady delivered Tampa a Super Bowl title in 2021. That was his seventh Super Bowl victory. At the ring ceremony after that game, he looked back on how far he'd come. I was a six-round pick. You know, I was 199th pick. I never forgot that. I still haven't forgot that to this day. 
He was drafted in 2000 by the New England Patriots, where he played for 20 seasons and won his previous six Super Bowls. There were raw feelings in the Northeast when Tom Brady left the team, but last year the Patriots congratulated him on his first retirement, tweeting, It was quite the ride. Thank you and congratulations, Tom Brady. This morning, the team retweeted that post and said, quite the ride indeed. Thank you again, Tom Brady. The Pats also tweeted three goat emojis, shorthand for greatest of all time, as did many fellow NFL players. Brady addressed those fellow teammates and competitors today, as well as his family and friends. Thank you guys for allowing me to live my absolute dream. I wouldn't change a thing. Last May, Fox Sports announced that Brady would be joining them as a TV analyst after his playing career, though we should note that in his 23-year career, he never went more than three straight years without a Super Bowl appearance. So I guess all we're saying here is, should Tom Brady decide to pull a Tom Brady again, the stats are on his side to make the big game next year in 2024. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Garo Higopi, and up next on All Things Considered, a conversation with artist Omar Apollo about his first time being nominated for a Grammy. He's nominated in the Best New Artist category. On Wall Street, the Dow ended up 7 points, the NASDAQ up 231, and the S&P 500 up 43. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, with customer service specialists available daily to help with your health and wellness questions in Cambridge and Brighton and at CambridgeNaturals.com. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Tomorrow on WBUR's All Things Considered, two large families that fled Afghanistan in 2021 are living in a Newburyport church basement more than a year after they moved in. Since we're living in just a few rooms, two families, the basement is so tight for us, so that makes it a bit difficult for us. Advocates say the families should have been placed in permanent housing by now, and the government needs to do more to help refugees and other displaced people find homes. That story on tomorrow's All Things Considered here on 90.9 WBUR. Well, coming to City Space on Tuesday, February 21st, here and now co-host Scott Tong in conversation with former CNN chief media correspondent Brian Stelter, speaking about democracy under threat and the future of the news industry. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. In sports, it's the Bruins and Maple Leafs in Toronto, and the Celtics host the Nets, both games getting underway at 7.30. Checking the forecast now, clear tonight, low 19 degrees. Tomorrow, overcast before gradually becoming sunny. It'll be windy with a high of 38. Clear, frigid tomorrow night, low 12 degrees. Sunny and cold on Friday, highs in the mid-teens, feeling like below zero with that wind chill. And on Saturday, blustery, hitting the upper teens for highs. Right now, 30 degrees and clear skies in Boston. This is WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. This week, we're bringing you stories of this year's first-time Grammy nominees. And we begin the series with Omar Apollo. Evergreen. 
He's an artist who, just 10 years ago, didn't even know how to sing. But he quickly rose from making music at his parents' house in Hobart, Indiana, to snagging a Grammy nod for Best New Artist. A few weeks back, my team and I met up with Apollo at a sprawling park atop the Hollywood Hills. And I'm 5'2", so when I met him, I suddenly felt really, really short. You're like 6'5", 6'6"? 6'5", yeah. 6'5". Okay. Are your parents both really tall? Nah, short Mexican people. What happened to you? I don't know. I'm the milkman's son. (laughs) Now, we had been told that Omar Apollo loved nature. And so his team said a great place to meet him would be this very park, because they said there was a trail here that he likes to hike. But is there like a spot you normally go to? I've actually never been here. Oh, you serious? Oh my God. He says his actual favorite place to hang out is at home, but we weren't invited there. Fine. So we kept playing along with this joke. Yeah, like I come here and I just come over, want to, you know, alleviate the pressure of the world <laughs> that has been weighing on me as a young Mexican American. Cause baby, there's something you know. Apollo released his first full-length album, Ivory, last year. And now he has more than 13 million monthly listeners on Spotify. But it all started when he uploaded this track, You Got Me, to the streaming service back in 2017. It's barely two minutes long, but when he woke up the next day... He says the ballad had already racked up tens of thousands of streams. As we settled in on a long wooden bench overlooking a canyon, he told me about the exact moment he knew he wanted to pursue music for a living. He was 17 and had just seen an advertisement inside a store. There was like a little microphone there that said like, make music. And I was like, damn, I want to make music. So then I got a job at McDonald's and then saved up to get a laptop, saved up to get a microphone. And then, like, just with those two, I started. And this was in your bedroom. You were starting to record music, right? My garage, yeah. It was a winter. It was, like, negative 10 degrees. And I'm every time I'm, like, trying to sing, I could see my breath. And I didn't want to sing in the house because I was so embarrassed. Even my dad told me I was terrible. <laughs> so I would go on YouTube and I'd practice for hours and try to learn how to give natural vibrato. Did um, you get it? Yeah. And then I was like, okay, now that I learned it, you know, maybe three weeks later, I sang in front of him. He was like, oh, it sounded good. And I was like, oh, this yeah. is this is how life is. Yeah, and after that, I was like, oh, I can learn things. That's You're literally what well. I do. <laughs> start from zero. No one wants to start from zero. I want to talk a little bit about the range in your music. Like, on your last album, Ivory, was that deliberate to have this wide range of of sound. I just, I really love music. I grew up with mariachis and corridos. I grew up with soul music, dance music. I grew up with like the super romantic, conservative stuff that my mom listened to. And then like also like the explicit, you know, bravado rap, you know? So when I'm making music, one, it's probably ADHD. Two, it's like, there's something great in every genre, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Even for Ivory, I was like, damn, I like rapping. I'm going to rap on Tamagotchi, like, and just talk. 
Ando de gira y todos me sigan, los chicos me quieren tocar. Tengo dinero y ando soltero, dime lo que quiero comprar. And then I want to make like a really sad, soulful ballad about unrequited love. I guess it's just a reflection of how I feel. What about when it came to an Elovido? First of all, so is, I, it, is it fair to call that corrido? Yeah, it's like a corrido. It's like a mariachi, traditional, classic type of song. Yeah. With like a little bit of, you know, R&B. Arrancaste todo que quedaba Por razones que no aceptaba Cariño, yo fui buen amante En el olvido quiero dejarte for that song specifically, I was like Juan Gabriel and like Pedro Infantes and like even my grandma would show me stuff that I've, you know, learned from. And I think I just wanted to perform a song that made me feel like I was at home, that nostalgia that I carry, you know what I mean, everywhere I go. You know, you're the son of Mexican immigrants, you're bilingual, you're from the Midwest. You've also talked about identifying as queer. Like, do you feel like now that you are this big performer, people are making you think more about your identity? Yeah, for sure. Definitely. But Is it ex- exhausting? For sure. Mm-hmm. But I don't give that too much power. But that was definitely in the beginning, like, a big thing. I was like, oh, damn, every headline is, you know, queer Mexican immigrant. I was just like, I was like what about the album I just put out? <laughs> like... Is it a lot of weight then to be seen as a musician that's supposed to represent being the child of Mexican immigrants, also being queer, also being from the Midwest, like all of that? Does it feel like a lot of responsibility? I guess I just want to understand that it doesn't feel like responsibility, which is good. That's good. Because it's like so effortlessly me. It's not like I have to like uh, work towards being gay. So what was it like when you first learned that you were nominated for Best New Artist? I was in Atlanta in my hotel room. Then my manager and all my friends like are knocking on my door like with like cameras and stuff. And I'm like, please, like this is gonna give me so much anxiety. <laughs> yeah. And so then they said it and I, you know, everyone tackles me on the bed, you know, and then uh, I kick everyone out, call my dad, call my mom. My dad's at work, he's got his little cook hat on. He's like, congratulations, like, so, you know, so cute. Yeah, the whole day, everything everything I did felt Grammy nominated. The food, I got my nails done. I was like, oh, it's Grammy nominated nails yeah. right here. What'd you get your nails, what did you get on your nails? It's just sheer pink, I've been simple lately, you know? Well, Omar Apollo, it has been such a joy to be sitting here on this bench overlooking this valley talking to you. Thank you. I love this bench. I've actually been coming here for Stop years. Stop it! Right, can we do it all over again? <laughs> what you trying to be bad for? What you making me bad for? It's somebody I don't know, say I don't know. It's somebody I don't know, say I don't know. 
You're listening to All Things Considered. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that bring joy to your life. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England, and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including a 12-month Flower of the Month subscription that begins with a rose arrangement on Valentine's Day. Visit WBUR.org.